Well, this seems to be the day that we talk about obstacles and difficulties. So <clears throat> I'm going to do that. I'm going to talk about the obstacles, some of the obstacles we encounter in our uh, creative expression that prevent us really from doing it. And I'm not talking about the outer ones of time and um, you know material support. I'm really talking about these obstacles that the inner ones that we set up in, in and for ourselves. Um, so you know here we're we're quite protected and nurtured and encouraged to be creative and yet even here as we know we come up against these obstacles so imagine how much harder it is out in the in the real world where we're surrounded by distractions to, to do these things. And, you know, we have many maneuvers to keep ourselves from doing them. One of the ones I think of is the thing of I have to, I have to be uh, completely ready and prepared. I have to prepare the space and the time and all of that. I have to clean off the desk. I have to pay all the bills. I have to make the phone calls that I've been putting off. I have to stack up the post-its you know, in two piles, the big ones and the little ones, I have to line up the pens, and then I have to open my email because there might be something really important there. <laughs> but there are, there are lots of variations on this. You know, the kitchen floor really needs scrubbing. And did someone take out the garbage last night? You know, all this stuff. And then there's that lamp that got broken in March and really needs to be repaired. I think maybe get to that. You know, um, Virginia Woolf said, when I sit down to write, my thoughts are like the laundry of a family of 14 flapping on the line. <laughs> it's kind of, that's me meditating, actually. <laughs> so why do we, what, what are all these distractions? Why do we have all these things preventing us from doing the thing that we want to do and that will give us pleasure. And, you know, I think it's about fear. And what if we just, we just did what our Buddhist teachers encourage us to do and turn toward the fear and explore it? So I have uh, <laughs> I've identified five of them. I'm sure there are many more. So the first one is the fear of nothing to say. I'm convinced I have nothing to contribute, nothing to express. No one could possibly be interested in my thoughts, my vision. And while the roots of this have to come from our families, don't they? I mean, my dad, whose dad? Anne's dad was a general. My dad was a carpenter and um, uh, you know, a... Um, contractor, building contractor by trade. However, he was convinced that he was an expert on, on everything, like religion, <laughs> religion, politics, um, world events, how women should act, how men should act, particularly how his daughters should act and dress. <laughs> and he held forth all the time in our house until he sort of sucked all the air out of the house. And the rest of us, my mother and me and my siblings were left mute. We, couldn't, we had nothing to say. 
And you know, the message was so successful that um, I really did believe that. And I remember there was a, a moment in high school, and um, I guess, I don't know why, but anyway, I was invited to go as a delegate to a mock legislature at the Capitol building. I lived in Columbus, Ohio, and they were doing this thing for high school students, and I was invited to go. And I actually said to them, but I have nothing to say. And when they tried to convince me to go, I absolutely refused. I wouldn't do it. Uh, and it's, it's kind of pathetic, isn't it? You know, it never occurred to me that, that this would be a challenge, it would be fun, it would be an opportunity, I might learn something. It, it, it was just for, you know, for me at that time, a kind of disability, I think. And some of you may share that. Not all the time. You know, sometimes you're probably very articulate and forthcoming, and then there are, there are moments when you're convinced you have nothing to say. Then, you know, you grow up to be an adult, and you walk in a bookstore, and you, or you, let's say a library, and you see thousands of books that have already been written. Do they need another? You know, you go in a museum, and here are, are hundreds of paintings and drawings and etchings and photographs and installations and all of that. Who needs my vision in this? It's pretty, um, it's pretty overwhelming. And you know, it's, it's instructive to discover that, that even the most sublime writers suffer sometimes from this loss of heart. And I want to read, T.S. Eliot had actually an advanced case of it when he wrote this. Each venture is a new beginning, arrayed on the inarticulate with shabby equipment always deteriorating in the general mess of imprecision of feeling. And what there is to conquer by strength and submission has already been discovered once or twice or several times by men and women whom one cannot hope to emulate. (laughs) So it's rather remarkable, isn't it? This is one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. Amazing that he he could feel that way. But... We can make choices. We can make choices to follow our original inspiration. We can make uh, choices that to go back to that moment when we know what it is we want to paint and maybe even know how to begin, and we can go ahead and do it. And we don't need to succumb to the voices of defeat and discouragement. Um, I think sometimes it's useful to remind ourselves of the many many tasks we have completed and the many things we have done very, very well, how very competent we really are, how very intelligent and gifted we really are. And also, I think, to remind ourselves that perhaps something we've done, something we've written, uh, some piece of art we've done has really touched other people and made a difference to them. And there's an importance to what we do. It matters that we do our creative work. Um, I want to offer one suggestion. Sometimes when I'm starting something that's really kind of scary, I bring into the room a friend, someone who loves me unconditionally or as close to that as anybody can get and uh, is very supportive of me, very accepting of me. In my imagination, I bring that person in sit him or her in front of me, and I tell the story to them. So it's not 
about writing, it's not about sending it out to the world, it's just speaking to this dear friend in the moment. Making it safe. Somehow we have to make it safe enough to do this. And then I always remind myself um, when I think I have nothing to say that, that, that only I, let's say only you, can make that drawing. Only you can make that painting. Only you can write that creative piece. And if you don't do it, it's not going to exist anywhere. Nobody else, nobody else can, can do your writing for you. Only you. Fear number two, fear of the blank page. That was mentioned, wasn't it? I think Anne mentioned it, and not as a fear, but and and Anna did too. Um, you know, teachers have intimidated us a lot, really destroyed our confidence in this way. And we look at that page, and terror grips us. Ah, oh, I can't possibly do this. And then, you know, there are some very strange models out in the world about how creative work is done. Hollywood is especially good at providing these for us. Um, there was a movie, which maybe some of you remember, um, called Julia, uh, in which Lil- about Lillian Hellman and Dash... And, well, anyway, Lillian Helen and Hellman and Dashiell Hammett are in a house by the ocean in New England, Lillian Hellman, the playwright, Dashiell Hammett, the great mystery writer. And uh, Lillian is trying to write her first play. It's nighttime, the window is open, you can hear the waves coming back and forth. She has a little Remington, a little black Remington, and she's smoking cigarettes. The ashtray is full, but she lights yet another. She's drinking scotch. Um, she types a few words. It's, oh, it's terrible. She rips it out, wads it up, throws it back. She types some more, rips it out, throws it back, lights another cigarette, has another drink of scotch. At one point, she got so frustrated that she picks up the typewriter and throws it out the window into the flower bed. So this is going on all night. You hear the waves back and forth, waves back and forth. And Dashiell is somewhere. He's down on the beach drunk, or he's in the next room. and He, he had that problem. And um, then at, at a particular, and she paces, she paces, paces, paces. You know how, um, it was Jane Fonda who was playing, you know how Jane Fonda can pace and be intense. And she, Lillian Hellman is pacing, 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 and then all of a sudden, oh! and you realize, oh, oh, she's got it, she's got something. She goes to the window, she pulls the typewriter out of the flower bed, she sits it on the desk, and away she goes. Okay, this is a movie, so we cut. We cut to morning, and she's handing to Dashiell Hammett the completed manuscript <laughs> of the children's hour. And then because it's a movie, we cut, and we're on Broadway. The show is just finishing. They're on their feet, and she's made. <laughs> so, um, you know... Actually, for most writers that I know, this, this isn't how the process goes. <laughs> it's more about, um, you know, long periods of accumulating. And before you even get to the blank page, 
you're gathering. I call this the gathering period. You know, your um, <clears throat> artists do this too. They make the drawing after drawing after drawing, painting, 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 uh, before they start in on the big thing. So, so they don't arrive there with an empty mind. One could arrive with an empty mind. Perhaps there are people who do that, but uh, mostly not. So, you know, keeping a notebook, keeping a computer file, keeping... There's a, a, a New York playwright who has a series of shoeboxes in her closet and she puts the notes in the shoeboxes and when enough of accumulating... Waiting for it to gel in the mind and gathering and gathering thoughts. You know, having a, a notebook next to your bed so that you wake in three in the morning and get one of those terrific ideas that only pass through once, you write it down. It makes for very strange writing in the middle of the night, you know, in, in the dark. But gathering. So by the time you arrive, well, let's say there's, some, there, there's then a, a day when you know it's time to begin. It's all here. It's all ready. It's all cooked. This is the moment. And then you go up to the blank page. It doesn't feel like a blank page anymore because you're just real excited, like Lillian was, about typing <laughs> or, or putting the mark on the page and the next mark and the next mark. Um, <clears throat> Sixteen years ago, I, was, I had uh, third-stage colon cancer and, and had major surgery and 26 weeks of chemotherapy, very bad year. And during that whole time, <clears throat> I was documenting everything. I was just keeping everything. It was just a habit with me. I mean, from being a, the kind of writer that I am, I tend to save things. I was writing in a journal. Sometimes I was speaking in a tape recorder. Uh, I was saving every piece of paper from the hospital, every test, all of that. And I just put it in a file drawer and didn't think about it. <clears throat> And at the end of the year, um, I had a whole file drawer full of papers and, and audio tapes and all kinds of stuff. And at that point, I knew, oh, I'm kind of glad I did that because I knew I had to write a book about this experience. And the way I found that out was I was in, in the hospital, one of my hospitalizations, and, and the head of surgery came in to visit me. His name was Dr. Organ. You know? Seriously, these doctors. My my surgeon's name was Doctor Bold, so I was in good hands. Doctor Organ and Doctor Bold. <laughs> Doctor Organ came in. He was talking to me, and he looked at the he looked at the books on the table next to my bed, uh, and you know it was Isabella Allende's Paula about her daughter's death. There's a, there's a book called Diary of a Zen Nun about a by Nan Shin, by a, a nun who's dying of cancer, and then Audre Lorde's The Cancer Journals. He's looking at this and he says, gee, that's kind of depressing reading batter, isn't it? And I, I hadn't thought about it. And he, he left, and I thought, oh, uh, this really, these were the only things I wanted to read during that period. And I wanted to read them because these people had gone before me. They had gone into this tunnel and gone through it, even unto death, some of them. But I wanted to know what it was like to go ahead, to go through there. That's all I wanted to read. And then I understood, okay, I have to write this experience too. Um, 
So, um, you know, a whole year had passed and I was feeling much better and healthy again. Here I am, I'm still healthy. (laughs) And I had my whole file drawer full of materials and instead I wrote another book. I wrote a book called Opening the Lotus, kind of primer. And then a few more years passed and I got out interested in Kuan Yin, Bodhisattva of Compassion, and I started thinking about her and having experiences with her. And then I wrote a book about Kuan Yin. And pretty soon it was four years later. And um, so I knew this, it must, this must be the time. I can't put this off anymore. And I, with, a, with a great deal of dread, I have to say, I went and uh, opened the drawer and looked at the materials. And uh, some of them, actually some of them were quite funny. Uh, Some of them were just painful. Uh, It was difficult to look at. But um, I knew the time had come and that I had to begin. Um, So I want to offer a suggestion here. If If you're really assaulted by the terrors of the blank page, Here's a possibly helpful exercise. You open a new notebook or you, you get, open a new computer file and you label it why I can't write or why I can't do art. Okay? Then you jot down every one of your doubts about your ability, your talent, your intelligence, your perseverance, your capacity to produce. You wallow in self-denigration. Now here's a, a list I recently made. I can't fill that blank page because I lost the spelling bee in the fifth grade. I can't write because I'm too dumb, careless, superficial, bizarre. I can't write because I didn't get enough sunshine as a child. I can't write because I don't have a PhD. I can't write because I do have a PhD and it really screwed me up. I can't write because the goddess hasn't given me permission. I can't write because I am inherently incapable of creative work. And no one as addicted to chocolate as I could possibly write a book. (laughs) So then you open the other file and you label it, I can fill that blank page because. Because I'm sensitive to language. I can write because I used to have a good memory. I can write because in compulsory home ec, I sewed a slip with only slightly crooked lace on it. This is full disclosure here. I can write because I do a pretty good Sudoku puzzle. I can write because when I was in third grade, I composed a poem to my grandma and she loved it. I can do anything because once on Cape Cod, I constructed an air filter for the car out of paper towels and piano wire. And it's possible to view the blank page as a teacher. Annie Dillard, who's one of my favorite um, writers, wrote a wonderful book called A Writer's Life. She was asked by a student, who will teach me to write? And this was what she answered. The page which you cover woodenly, ruining it, but asserting your freedom and power to act. Acknowledging that you ruin everything you touch, but touching it nevertheless, because acting is better than being here in mere opacity. The page which you cover slowly with the crabbed thread of your gut. The page in the purity of its possibilities. 
the page of your death against which you pit such flawed excellences as you can muster with all your life's strength. That page can teach you to write. The next fear is the fear of criticism. And you know, this is really, this is, this is, not, this is a very rational fear. Uh, criticism can be deeply wounding, even disabling. Um, <clears throat> when I was a college student at Ohio State, I, I was writing and I wanted to be a writer and I was writing and I, there was a class offered in playwriting for graduate students and I was not a graduate student but I applied and got into it because I wanted to learn how to write a play, why not? And over the course of, of the class, we each wrote a full-length play. And in my play, there was a character, a major character, who spoke in a thick Italian accent. Now, I can't tell you why I did that. It was a very bad idea. But I, I don't even know that I knew what an Italian accent was. But, but I wrote it in dialect, Italian accent dialect. And so we handed in our plays, and, and the day came for the teacher to talk about them. This professor, he pulled out my play, and he started to read it, and he parodied the Italian accent with great uh, Mediterranean gestures. He burlesqued it. He did it. And, you know, the expression, dying a thousand deaths. Well, I was about up to 858 by the time he finished reading my play. Um, and I'll just um, admit to you that I have never been able to write a play since. So this fear of criticism, you have to be very careful who you show your material to. Watch out for those professors. <laughs> um, and I have in my mind a, a model of the optimal state crea- for creative work. I used to love to play in the dirt when I was little, and I'd go out and I'd sit in the dirt and I'd get some water, pour the water on so you have lots of mud. Then I could make a mountain, I could make a town, I could make a train, I could make anything I wanted. I was wholeheartedly engaged in that creation. And not once into my mind did the thought ever come, I wonder if this is good. I wonder if this is good enough. I wonder if this little town is as good as that little kid's town. It never occurred to me to think about that. So how do we get to that blessed state? Uh, Because we have all these critics. And I would say first we need to identify the critics, bring them in the room, identify them. There's dad, there's, you know, teacher in third grade, there's an editor at a magazine, there's any number of people like this. You identify them, you, you uh, tie their hands behind them, uh, bind their ankles, lay them gently on the floor, and then you take the, the masking tape, no, not masking tape, duct tape, and you... Mm, <laughs> you bind their mouth. Then you drag them out into the hallway. You lay them gently down and you say, in their ear, you whisper, later I may invite you in. And then you proceed to do your work. No critics allowed. No critics here. Now, you know, obviously we know it isn't that we don't need our critics and our critical capacities and 
they really do serve us well. But they serve us well later on, not in that first stage where the material, it, you just have to, where there has to be a space for the material to come out with nobody looking on, nobody commenting. <clears throat> and then obviously, if, for instance, a piece of writing is going to be a finished piece, it goes through various drafts, and you may ask for comments from others and, and get critique and critique it yourself, and there it is. Um, and, and you show your work to people. As a writer, I'm very grateful for others' comments and suggestions, and it's wonderful to have a good editor. They're priceless. But I'll say two things about a good critic. A good, a good critic doesn't ask a piece to be something that it's not and recognizes the value that's actually in there rather than asking it to do something that you didn't set out to do. A good critic will tell you what's wrong with your piece but probably won't tell you how to fix it because that really is your business and you know the most about it. And so, you know, you have to be very careful who, who you show a piece to and keeping in mind whatever, whether their prejudices, their perspective and so forth when they talk to you about it too. It's tricky. <clears throat> then there's the fear of failure. It's really about being awkward, about making mistakes, about doing things that don't work. And then we globalize and we say, well, that proves it. I'm not supposed to do creative work. And this can drive us, you know, to radical action. Uh, I used to write short stories when I was young. I wrote a lot of short stories. And, and I would send them out to literary magazines and they would come back and come back and come back. And usually I was okay with that. You know, I licked my wounds for a while. I wrote the thing again. I sent it out. But sometimes it was just too much. So I would go out in the backyard, build a fire, take all my stories, walk out there um, in tragic mien and toss the stories into the fire and they would... And that was, you know, when we used typewriters, that was a serious thing. <laughs> there was no hard disk anywhere. So, um, actually I'm quite encouraged to hear that somebody like Eudora Welty, who was one of our greatest short story writers, did sort of the same thing. She was, she was starting out, and she, um, she was doing what I was doing. She was sending out stories to literary magazines. They were all coming back, all coming back. So one day she said, that's it. Destroyed them. I'm not a writer. <laughs> Two weeks later, she got a phone call from an editor at one of these very uh, prestigious literary magazines. And she said, you know, we, we just made a mistake around that story of yours. And we, we should have accepted it. We want to publish it. Will you send it back to us? And of course she was aghast. Like, oh. So when she recovered, she sat down. And from memory, word for word, she rewrote the whole story. That story is The Petrified Man. I don't know if you know this story. It's been anthologized hundreds of times. It's, it's the kind of story that's used in a short story writing class to teach people to write stories. Um, Stephen King wrote 60 stories and four novels, all of which were rejected before Carrie. <laughs> accepted and you know the story is that he even that one he threw it in the wastebasket 
his wife went and pulled it out of the wastebasket when he wasn't around and read through it and said, you know, honey, it's not too bad. We could work on this. And, you know, and that became Carrie, and he was launched. William Faulkner, after he had received the Nobel Prize in Literature, was still being rejected by the New Yorker. <laughs> in the week before she took her own life, <clears throat> Virginia Woolf received a rejection slip from an American magazine for one of her stories. I'm not positing cause and effect, I'm just saying. And then there's this wonderful story about Tennessee Williams, who, when he was a student at the university, took a playwriting class, much like the one I took. And um, his first play, the professor held it up in front of him and said, this is very, very inept. You will never be a playwright. (laughs) And that was the glass menagerie which is one of our the most classic and long-lasting plays. So um, I hope it's comforting that nobody, no matter where they are along that trajectory, is exempt from disappointment. And whether that's disappointment in, in yourself, in your room, or whether it's out in the world in some big way, it's, it's happening. Um, <clears throat> when I was quite young, I... I got accepted into the McDowell Colony in New Hampshire. And that's a terrific place. If you can ever get there, please do go. It's, it's an artist colony. It's, it's artists, graphic artists, it's writers, and it's musicians, and it's composers all, the, all together. And they give you a little cabin in the woods. They give you fantastic food. <laughs> Everybody gains 10 pounds. And then they just leave you alone to do your creative work. And then, they, and then in the evening, you go up to the big house and have dinner with everybody else. So I was really excited. And I sat down and I wrote 50 pages, first 50 pages of a novel. Just did it. And so when Friday came, I quit. I, I spent the weekend hiking through the woods and having a good time. I came back on Monday morning and sat down and read my 50 pages. And, and I was appalled. I mean, really, only like five of them. Only ten of them, actually, were usable in any way. They were just like, oh, I was so disconsolate. And I went to dinner that night. I was sitting at a table, and there were like three painters from New York and, and a composer and a couple writers. And they said, well, how was your day? So I, I usually didn't talk about what, I was, what was happening, but I told them what had happened that day and that this recognition I had come to and they, they, it was quiet at the table for a while and then this one painter leaned forward and she said well you know if, if one out of five of my drawing turns out well I, I actually count myself lucky I think that's a pretty good percentage <laughs> and I looked around and they were all going like that so <laughs> so you know the message was clear you've got to be willing to um, you know get in there to write to get to the good stuff you have to be willing to experience the fear you have of failing and just as we do in our Buddhist practice just go through the feelings and um, you know be patient with your efforts and keep doing it so the final fear is the fear of finishing which has been mentioned in my writers group more than once. And, you know, there are... Um, I work as a writing consultant and people come to me and they say, oh, I have, I have drawers 
full of unfinished manuscripts. I just can't seem to finish anything. And I'm sure that's true of graphic artists too. Lots and lots of boxes of unfinished drawings and plans for things. Um, and, I, and I wonder why people don't finish things. Well, I, I think when we, when we do finish something, we are truly committed to it. And, um, you know, someone may not like it. Someone may like it for the wrong reason. Someone may think that we're really weird. So there's a fear of exposure there, I think. Um, in, a, in a piece of work, if it's, if it's deep work, we have really exposed ourselves. We've shown who we are. And then the fear comes, will we be rejected? You know, art is a solitary task, usually. So bringing it out into the world can be pretty... Um, pretty scary as a finished product. So if we don't finish it, we can stay very safely tentative. We are never fully committed. Well, of course it isn't any good because I didn't finish it. I think that may be one reason. There are also obviously very complicated emotional reasons that people don't finish things. Um, I've been trying for many years, for decades, to write a book about my brother who committed suicide when he was 28 and I was 19. And over the years, I have tried again and again. I have, I have a, so many pages piled up, nonfiction manuscripts, fiction manuscripts. I've tried and tried and tried to, to uh, complete these things, to bring them through to completion, some way to find some redemption, I think, in the event. And I can't do it. And I, so I asked myself, why not? Why can't I? And, and I think somehow all these years later, it's still too raw. It's still too intimate. It's still too traumatic. To, uh, I can work on it, but to think of bringing it out into the world. And some instinct of wanting to keep that event and that relationship private, wanting to keep it just for me, Maybe. Um, there's also related to this not finishing, I think, what I would call emotional stinginess. <laughs> you know, clinging to the peace, keeping it for ourselves. So let's say we've gone through the fears, we, we, we've gone through n- nothing to say, blank page, criticism, failure, the whole deal. We're writing away. Everything is happening. Everything is clicking. It's very exciting. Um, lots of satisfaction, lots of fun. I don't want to let it go. I don't want to stop doing this. And there's a, there's a sub-fear in this, which is, if I finish this, I will never find anything else to write about. This is it for me. And so we hold on, we rewrite, we revise, we polish, we, because it's going to feel so strange when it's done. It's sort of like the empty nest syndrome, you know, an encounter with emptiness that can be so uncomfortable. There's also an element of loyalty, I think, in finishing. Loyalty to ourselves. Um, You know, I said I piled up that file drawer of stuff about the cancer thing, and finally I said, okay, I have to do this, and I looked at it and seriously wanted to run away. Um, But I had by that time a a contract (laughs) and a publisher, so I couldn't. But it it meant I had to re-enter that terribly painful period of my life and, and just reside in it for a period of time. So I was kind of quailing inside at the prospect, but 
I, I really understood that to be true to myself, really, to be loyal to that person who had gone through this experience and who wanted so much to share it with others, if I was going to be true to her, I had to write this book, no matter how it felt to me to do it. So I marshaled support. I had friends who were spotting me over here. I signed up with my therapist to come regularly. And, and I started in, and some days were actually fun. As I said, some of it's kind of funny and, and good-humored. And, and then other days, it was really hard to do, and I just sort of had to force each sentence out, and I would do that for an hour. And then I would go in the living room and lie on the couch and cry for an hour. Then I would get up, go back to the desk, and write some more. And in this manner, uh, the book got done. I think I was what I was doing was opening to all those emotions which I had had to control. You know, when we're going through these awful traumas, just in order to make it through the next day, you can't really go where your feelings are. So here it was, five years later, and there they were, and they were coming up, and I just had to go through that tunnel with them. And, you know, it's all about grief, it's all about loss. And learned, I think, to be... uh, gentle with myself because you know I was falling apart periodically and and so I had to be uh, gentle and 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 give compassion to myself and it, 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 it did help to remember all the people in the world who had who had gone through or were now going through the same kind of experience that I had <clears throat> so essentially in order to do it I had to open my heart and uh, it was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. But when it was completed, I realized that the writing had brought with it a healing, which is not something I had even thought about, but that I had been able to explore this with some humor, with some love, and, and, and the ironies, the ironies as well as the agonies. And um, when it was completed, I knew I'd never have to go back there again. It was finished. It's finished. So, the great Buddhist teaching that our teachers keep giving us really speaks to me. To turn toward the experience, to go deeply into it, let that energy be expressed through me, through you. That's the way out of suffering. The book is called Hidden Spring. It's taken from a Japanese death poem. In the heart of the fire lies a hidden spring. So, You know, despite these obstacles we encounter when we address ourselves to creative work, creative expression, uh, despite all the ways we're tempted to hold ourselves back, sell ourselves short, give in to our fears, despite all these tendencies, we we can do it. We can go ahead. And I think about when we do that, we, we, we enter into... Um, really that magic that is true creativity. Um, I rem- again, I remember a, a childhood thing that speaks to me about this. As I said, I like to play in the dirt. I also liked to dig back then. And it was a summer day. My siblings were gone. Uh, my mom was busy. My dad was at work. And there was nothing to do. It was kind of like confronting the blank page. Nothing to do, wandering around. And out in back of the garage, there was a blank space of dirt. So I, ah, I got an idea. Like Lillian Hellman. Oh, there it is. 
And so I went and got the shovel, and I decided I was going to build, I was going to dig a pond with an island in the middle. So I started, and it was very hard. The shovel, I was about nine or ten. The shovel was kind of big for me. But I persisted. I dug my pond, maybe this deep, about this big, and in the middle, well, bigger than that. And in the middle was an island. And it was, when it was done, I got the hose, I filled it with water, I put my feet in the water, I sat down and I looked at my creation, and it was good. <laughs> and then my mom was calling me into dinner, <laughs> and, and so I went in, you know, forgot about it, went to bed, came out the next morning, came to my pond, looked at it, and there on the island was sitting a big green frog who had completely taken possession of this island and this thing. And I thought, oh, it's magic. It's, that's, what, that's, creative. that's what the creative process is at its best, isn't it? And then the frog appears. The thing is done. Oh. <laughs> so I'll end with some words from Annie Dillard again. One of the few things I know about writing is this. Spend it all. Shoot it, play it, lose it all, right away, every time. Do not hoard what seems good. Give it. Give it all. Give it now. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.